Morning Glory and Evening Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on the Friday after the big presidential debate. I am so pleased to welcome back Dr. Larry Arn of Hillsdale College, uh, my friend and colleague here on the radio dial. Every last hour of the Hugh Hewitt Show every week is the Hillsdale Dialogue. All of them collected at HughForHillsdale.com. And because of the uniqueness of this week in my life, we pre-taped this one before the debate actually happens. And so... It may be ironic in some respect afterwards because of the subject matter we're talking about, which is Winston Churchill. Dr. Arn, how are you? I'm very well. And just think of this. You've, you've had a huge performance after we're talking, so I can say unreservedly, you did great. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that might be the only compliment I have after that performance. I'm going to treasure that, actually. But I'll, I'll tell you, it was a very, I'm just going to play that in an endless loop no matter what happens on Wednesday night. I'm just, <laughs> you did great. You did great. You did great. It's going to be like a vine. Uh, Dr. Arn and I have been doing the Hillsdale Dialogue, and we spent some time in Churchill last year. It was phenomenally popular. And then Dr. Arm went off and wrote a book about it. Took him forever to get it done, but it's coming out at the right time. It's called Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government. Now, here's my setup, Larry Arn. I was driving from the Reagan Library, where I was doing rehearsal on Sunday, to the Hoover Institution at Stanford, where I am today when I'm talking to you, before driving back down to the Simi Library, thinking about the urgent need of the press right now is to help the public identify who best to lead a country in a crisis. Would you agree with that? Yes. And so I was thinking what better time to talk about Churchill than right now and for the audience to go out and get Churchill's trial because I think we need another Reagan, Churchill, Thatcher, Lincoln, name it, great leader. And, I, and identifying them is not easy. No. It was, uh, you know, if you were alive at the time they were alive, it would be hard to tell. Uh, what you'd notice about Churchill, if you were alive at the time he was alive, here's a guy who was eloquent, everybody believed that, and also he wrote 50 books. In addition, he was in the news, he wrote thousands of newspaper articles, and that means you could read him writing things in the press all the time, and almost always, in the, uh, he, he wrote 8,000 big, long, huge, single-space pages of speeches. And there's one speech in there that I know of that he didn't write. And he wrote almost all of the newspaper articles, except some of the cheesier ones were drafted for him, some, a minority of them. I, in fact, when, when I was reading the introduction to Churchill's trial, I was staggered by how much a Churchill scholar must confront. When you, when you started talking about the 8,000 pages of speeches, and those are just the speeches. And then every night at dinner, he would hold forth. And these, this, what do you call it, an endless flow of articles, an infinite amount of articles? Yeah, well, I, it, it, it looks like he wrote six million words. Isn't that something? Yeah. So we don't have, we right away we can look at those 16 people on the Republican side and four on the Democratic side, and none of them are prolific writers. Though, though some of them have written books, and that's a good tell, isn't it? Yeah, and, you know, it, it, it's a distinction from Lincoln and Washington, because Washington was not, uh, he wasn't, he, he words... He's, he's the only really great statesman I know of where the key thing about him was not what he said. Uh, and uh, that's, you know, he had a lot of eloquent people around him, and he himself said some really beautiful things at significant times. But compare him to Lincoln and Churchill. They're both famous for beautiful things they said and wrote. 
I can ask, can I pause you for a second? I, I read to my students at Colorado Christian last week, uh, Washington's letter to the congregation at Newport, the Hebrew congregation at Newport. Do you think he drafted that himself? Because it's beautiful. Uh, I do think he did. Yeah, I think he did. I think his his first inaugural, for example, a very beautiful thing, is known to have been drafted by James Madison. That's a good speechwriter. So, so, you know, fair, you know, he, he there was talent around at the time. <laughs> yeah, I think he I think he drafted that himself. And uh, yeah, and there are and see, Link, the quantity of Lincoln's work is much smaller than the quantity of Churchill's. And so that's both good and bad if you're going to study Churchill, because uh, one, one thing people have to understand is that statesmen are like us in this. This is where we human beings live our lives. We have necessity we face. We have to eat. We have to f- take care of ourselves and our families. We have to work. We have to get money. We have to rest. We have to get better when we get sick, right? Just like animals, just exactly like animals. And yet, on the other hand, there's lots of things we do that make us embarrassed. And that means something stands outside even our own necessity and sits in judgment about what we do. Did we do the right thing? And we're the only beings on Earth that ask that question. And so statesmen are like that, too. They have to do things. You know, they, they exercise powers of life and death. And the, their, their powers are consequential not just for themselves and those they know. They're consequential for everybody in the United States. The American statesmen are consequential for everybody in the world. And so this interplay of principle of what you ought to do and what you must do is where all of us humans live. And Churchill and Aristotle both write that estimating the details rightly in light of the light that comes from principles, is where this where you find this happening. And that means to understand the statesman, it's very helpful to know what they were thinking and to understand the details that confronted them. And that's why it's handy that Churchill wrote so much, because Lord help us, did he not leave an extremely rich record? You know what else is helpful, Dr. Arn? I heard today... It was off the record, but I can refer to the fact that Doctor that General Mattis addressed a bunch of us at Hoover today, maybe 30 journalists. And General James Mattis is an amazing, amazing four-star hero. And, uh, and I can say this because it was part of a written record that he had published. People who have stepped across the line of departure from which they may not return that day are different from people who haven't, meaning warriors who go across a line into a battle at which their life is at risk, become different from people who have never done that. Churchill did that repeatedly. So not only does he, not only does he have this rich work and this fascinating career, he was often a soldier. Yeah, he was, uh, by the time he was 26 years old, he had fought in three wars and observed a fourth. He'd written best-selling books about two of those wars, articles that were very prominently read in, about all of the wars, and then he got elected to Parliament. And then he was a soldier again, uh, first of all, a senior. He was the head of the British Navy during the opening of the First World War. And then he went and fought personally in the, trench, uh, in the trenches in command of a regiment. And then in the Second World War, he was first again in charge of the British Navy and then prime minister, the, the supreme war leader in the greatest war in history. So he knew a lot about war. 
He also, and, and again, back to Victor Davis Hanson, General James Mattis, military leaders bring war's grim realities to the table. They are able to, they tell us things that other people cannot, that political, purely political leaders do not know. Churchill's uh, understanding, uh, his deep understanding of the movement of modern times, which is something we'll talk about, and it's a very important thing in understanding Churchill. Churchill thought that we, that is to say Winston Churchill and us, who are talking now, listening, listening and talking now, live in a unique time in human history, and it's uniquely opportune and uniquely dangerous. And Churchill's understanding of nature is that opportunities and dangers have a way of going together. And so we face promise of well-being and peace and plenty like no people in all of human history. And we face destruction and despotism like no, no people in all of history. And so Churchill learned that to begin with on the battlefield. But for some remarkable reason, he could see that that had to be the case also in politics and peace. And so that means he was a man of brilliant imagination and insight, in my opinion. And so and for the next many, very young. And for the next many weeks, we're going to be diving into this. And I want to encourage everyone who's listening to go to Amazon.com and put in Arn, A-R-N-N, two N's, Larry Arn, and order Churchill's trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government, and also to go over to Hugh for Hillsdale, because there is going to be a special link at Hugh for Hillsdale to the six-part lectures on Churchill, which Dr. Arn has already recorded and which will be released in the next Hillsdale course. The first is why study Churchill. The second is the problem of modern war. The third is the strategy for modern war. The fourth is the problem of modern politics. The fifth is Churchill's plan for freedom. And the sixth is what Churchill teaches us about our time. We will not necessarily follow that same order or in that exact precision, because we will be reading the book together, and that means we might tarry a bit here or there. And when we come back from break, we begin to look at the introduction, because it's going to take next week as well. But since there are three segments left, we'll talk about the triple challenge that Winston Churchill faced in his extraordinary life, Churchill's Trial by Dr. Larry Arn, the president of Hillsdale College, now available for pre-order at Amazon.com. And I urge you to go and get it and start reading so you can get as much from these next few weeks as possible. Stay tuned. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue on the Hugh Hewitt Show. 21 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue, the hour of radio we set aside each week with Dr. Larry Arner, one of his colleagues from Hillsdale College, to talk about the important things or the important lives and for the next many weeks, at an appropriate time in our selection of a nomination for the Republican and the Democrat uh, presidential nominations, we're considering the life of Winston Churchill, which Dr. Arne has penned a new book about called Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government. There is a six-part course available at HughForHillsdale.com that you can register for immediately. You can also get all of Hillsdale's offerings at Hillsdale.edu. Uh, Larry, I thought we would start by talking about this triple challenge uh, that, that the book is broadly about. He had to face the Nazis, he had to face the communists, he had to face the domestic left, or the Western left. I guess I'm going to make it larger than the domestic left because it's larger than Great Britain. But I begin by noting that we are doing the first of these a week after the Labor, part, the Labor Party, of which he was a great opponent, except in war, has elected Jeremy Corbyn to lead it who may be the most radical person ever. Is he more radical than Bevan? Yeah, well, 
they were all, you know, back in those days, in the beginning, they were all going to nationalize all the big industries, and that's what they did when they got in in 1945. And to go back to that now, after all that history, after Churchill beat them back some, after Margaret Thatcher beat them back more, after Tony Blair moved the, the party toward the center, and it prospered after that, to go back to all of that after all of this, that's amazing. Well, but, but that is at the end of ours. Let, let's start it with the, your book has the three big challenges, Nazi Germany, Stalin's Russia, and the, the left in the West. But even before that, he had to face the challenge of not being the first son of, uh, uh, of the, he wasn't the Duke. He didn't inherit anything, did he? Well, so his father was the second son of a Duke. And that meant his father got a courtesy title. He's called Lord Randolph Churchill, and there were and and so Churchill got nothing. Churchill was the eldest son of Lord Randolph Churchill, so the grandson of a duke was Churchill, and duke is the highest peerage outside the royal family. Um, but he didn't get any title, and then unfortunately he was not born the grandson of the Duke of Westminster, who was richer than Croesus. <laughs> and so and so he could make all his collaterals and descendants rich. The Duke of Marlborough has never been rich like that, not rich like that today. So Churchill didn't get title or money. Uh, what he got was connection. Uh, he was from a famous family. His, the original Duke of Marlborough was a commoner by the name of John Churchill, who, more than any other person, led the forces that, that compromised Louis the Fourteenth and kept him from dominating Europe. He was a great general, maybe the greatest, if, if he wasn't the greatest, then the Duke of Wellington was the greatest. And he won his dukedom uh, by destroying large French armies repeatedly. And I and believe that, you told me once that Churchill's best book was the biographer, Biography of Marlborough. It's my true? favorite, and uh, there are two that are my favorites, and, and a third that's close, among all the 50. But the two that are my favorites, one is Marlborough, His Life and Times, and the other is The World Crisis. And those are multi-volume works, see? So wouldn't it be great if my favorite two books were both 300 pages long? Yeah, they're not. I actually have Marlborough in one volume. Was it combined eventually into one well, volume? Well, alas, Henry Steele Cominger... Uh, abridged the volume. He's a famous historian, right? And he's he's got the, the the keenest eye I have ever seen. He took out all of the most beautiful passages. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, going back then, he, he he starts from a position, and his parents aren't exactly the gift to the world, though he is half American as well. Yeah, well, his parents were, uh, his father was a tremendous man, and Churchill wrote a biography of his father and adored his father, although he was not close to either of them. And uh, they were, he, he wrote of his mother that she she shone for him as the evening star, beautiful and distant. Hmm. Uh, she was a lovely woman, and uh, his father died young from a mysterious disease, some think syphilis. Um, but his father was a, was like, he had a political career like a bottle rocket. He took off and he, he was, he had a glorious advance. And in a Tory government, and see, now his father is, is the son of the Duke, right? The second son of the Duke. 
his father grew up in Blenheim Palace. Churchill never lived there, Winston Churchill, although he did happen to be born there. He was premature. Uh, but his father grew up in Blenheim Palace, and so he comes into politics as the son of a duke. And, uh, and he became a Tory Democrat. And he was brilliant, and he was, uh, there's a wonderful speech. He was a scourge of William Gladstone. And, you know, people don't, probably don't know who these people are, but I, on any list of the greatest members of legislative assemblies in human history, Gladstone is going to be in the top ten, right? With He's Disraeli, doing, right? Along with Disraeli. With Disraeli and with, you know, some of Churchill. And, and uh, he was just, he was a, uh, he was a liberal and, you know, by, by Cracky, if we could have that liberal party today, I would be a member of it. Yes, and, uh, yes. <laughs> in a heartbeat. <laughs> and uh, Gladstone one time, so I'll just give you a flavor of Churchill's daddy. So it may be his most famous speech is called the Chips speech. And Gladstone was a very famous man and a great man and, you know, a senior man forever. And, and uh, his ho- hobby was chopping down trees with an axe. And so, you know, first of all, different world back then, huh? And uh, and uh, he felled the tree with the newspapers there and gave chips, wood chips, from the from the exercise to the working men who were visiting him. And he was talking to them, and they watched him chop down this tree. And so Lord Randolph turns that into the chips speech, and the refrain is, "And what has the great Gladstone to offer the working man of Britain?" Dry, cold, dead chips. Chips. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he's, he was very good, and uh, and uh, he he helped to break. It's a very funny thing. In 1888, is that right? I think that's the date. Um, Gladstone brought forth a bill to give home rule to the Irish, and uh, a man named Joseph Chamberlain, Neville Chamberlain's father. Uh, was a liberal in Gladstone's party, and he led a group who came over to the conservatives in protest against this. Lord Randolph Churchill, Churchill's father, was the man who received him and did the negotiations and brought them into the conservative party. And, uh, and they broke the Gladstone government and defeated Irish home rule. And that's interesting because Neville Chamberlain's father and Winston Churchill's father made that union, but then Winston Churchill later took the lead in negotiating home rule for Ireland, and of course he had a famous fight in the 1930s with Neville Chamberlain over appeasement. Moreover, when we come back, we're just setting the table for weeks of this. Winston Churchill not only did that, he also drew the map of the modern Middle East. You might not know that, America, but you'll find out if you continue listen to the Hillsdale Dialogue. As we go about picking a president, you might want to pick up Larry Arnn's brand new book, Churchill's Trial, and go to hughforhillsdale.com to sign up for the lecture. Stay tuned. It's the Hugh Hewitt Show. 34 minutes after the hour, America. It's Hugh Hewitt on the Friday after the debate, which really begins the presidential picking season. I have begun a season of Churchill with Dr. Larry Arnn, president of Hillsdale College. His brand new book, Churchill's Trial, can be pre-ordered from Amazon.com now so that it will arrive on the very first day that it is available. His first lecture in his Churchill Lecture Series will be available on October 5th, but you can pre-register for that series today at hughforhillsdale.com. 
And we need quite a lot of runway to get this plane off. I was thinking about that during the break, Larry Arn, that you can't just walk in and start talking about Churchill and Hitler because you need all this runway. You need the runway of, of Lord Randolph Churchill. You need the runway of Joseph Chamberlain and the imperialists. And I thought to myself, you even need the runway of Salisbury because I'm sure Andrew Roberts must be a friend of yours or you've talked with oh, him. Oh, sure he is. Yeah, good friend. And magnificent yeah. biography of Salisbury, which I've read three or four times because it's so great. And Lord Randolph Churchill, Winston's father's in there as resigning in a huff, thinking that Salisbury had nowhere to go but to him, and finding that he had forgotten there was somebody else around who could be the Chancellor of the Exchequer. Yeah, yeah. his career ended like that. Like so, that. <laughs> that's right. And so he, it was like a bottle rocket, right? It went up really fast, and it exploded really bright, and then it was over and fell to earth. And uh, he just miscalculated something terrible. Now, that must have had an impact on Winston Churchill, don't you think? Churchill, Winston Churchill thought he was going to die young, as his father did. And, you know, Churchill became prime minister at long last when he was 65 years old, and he died when he was 90 years old. That was a surprise to him. And then if you figure the number of times he exposed himself to gunfire, which his father never did, then, uh, wow. <laughs> so, so uh, yeah, it, let, me, let me state a principle, by the way, so that people can look for this. You, you want to talk about how we pick a leader. I think there are two things, and they're exactly parallel to the two things we always do. The first thing we need is we need a president who is extremely good at, at getting America's way in the world, in the circumstances we face. We need somebody... Churchill's wife wrote to Stanley Baldwin one time, only Winston has the deadliness to fight the Germans, hmm. right? Deadliness. Wow. I mean, I wish my wife would write like, like that about me. No, Clementine knew, knew her man, didn't she? Didn't she, though, see? And, and that quality, see, that's not just in war. That's somebody extremely good at getting his way. We need that, right? It, uh, you know, uh, all of us, right, we, we all get called sometimes to stand in a place where we have to assert ourselves and get our way or else some damage will be done. And, you know, that, pray God we get that right. Right. It's called standing the in the gap thing. in the Old Testament, right? Stand in the we gap. Need, it? We need somebody who's got the deadliness, right? People think Trump may have that, by the way. That's one reason he's prospering right now. Um, the second thing is, we need somebody who understands that none of this is personal. And I mean by that, the same thing I mean about every one of us. We are required to do the right thing somehow. And just serving our interest is not enough, although we have to do that. We have to find a way to make our interest conform to what is right. And in, in, for statesmen, it's, hard, it's even harder than for us because the consequences are so big and the problem's so big. So think of this. A statesman who's good at coping with details and getting the right thing done in his way, who also serves the Constitution, which is a law written more than 200 years ago. Somebody who can do both those things, Right. And that somebody is rare. And I argue that Churchill and Lincoln and Washington were such somebodies, also Margaret Thatcher. And that's why we study them, right? That's, that's why right. right now we need to study them very closely, we because we are in a crisis. 
That's right. I think that 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 the forces of lawlessness, of just will, of just doing what I want. I mean, goodness, they're negotiating a treaty right now. They have negotiated a treaty, and it looks like they've got it in. But it's supposed to take two-thirds of the Senate to confirm such a thing, and they've managed to twist it around so that it only requires one-third to approve it. And that's just lawlessness. It and, is, it's, and, it's a setting aside of the Constitution for the purposes of pure will as an expedient. And see, you've got to not just beat people. You've, you've got to not just not do that, I mean to say. You've got to follow and reestablish and reaffirm the forms of the law that everyone should have to obey. And at the same time, you have to beat people who are willing to forego those forms. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arn, his brand new book, Churchill's Trial, at Amazon.com. It's linked to DoHewitt.com. And HughForHillsdale.com is where you sign up for his course on Churchill, which we want to go want to go and do right now. I'll be right back. Stay tuned, America. 44 minutes after the hour, America. Hugh here with Dr. Larry Arn. It's debate week. It is also the first week that I'm talking with Dr. Arn of Hillsdale College, hillsdale.edu, about the new Churchill book and new Churchill series. The book is Churchill's Trial, Winston Churchill and the Salvation of Free Government, which is available at Amazon.com and linked at HughHewitt.com. And the series is on that book and on Churchill. And you can sign up for it, register. It's completely free, HughForHillsdale.com. The book is not free. You'll have to pay for the book, and you should pay for the book. And you'll want to read the book, but the course is free. Larry Arne, um, as I drove to uh, up the coast, I was listening to a book. Uh, not your book. I'm reading your book. I was listening to The Boys in the Boat, which is about the 1936 University of Washington crew team. And yeah. it's, uh, it's set in the course of the Depression where these boys learned to row. Uh, in a rigorous world where the depression is horrible, but it's also a parallel quick study of the rise of Hitler. And it struck me, Hitler had such a head start on Churchill. He gets elected in 33, and he has complete control of the government, and he can marshal all the resources of Germany, and he gets his way without any democratic opposition, and he gets a six-year head start on on Churchill. It's remarkable that Churchill pulled this off. Yeah, and and, uh, Churchill thought that he would. And the reason is he thought you can actually assemble more power in a free and limited government than you can in a despotism. Uh, he, he That's loved, counterintuitive. That just doesn't make... What, yeah. what are they afraid of, he would say? Words, even whispers, frighten them to death. Huh. Uh, he he uh, quotes, uh, you know, and this is, by the way, in, in 1940... Right. The Germans have several hundred divisions, and the British have fewer than a dozen. And the divisions they have have been hurled off the continent, and they're back on Britain, British shores without their heavy equipment. And the Germans have a bigger air force, and they have a and they have they if they get across the Channel, everybody knows the war's over. The first step the British were going to do is give up London, and it's in those months when that's going on that Churchill gives his strongest speeches about how weak Germany is. <laughs> and and, and there, that was partly to rally people, and it did. But also, I think he believed that, very much believed that. And, can I ask uh, you, would you give a why? physical... Because we can. What can we do? We Americans, right? We can talk and figure it out and make a decision together and all be part of it. 
if we choose to. Now, would you give a physical description of Churchill? Because I also like to remind people they don't have to be a towering, imposing figure to lead. He wasn't. Well, the best thing about Winston Churchill's physical appearance is that he was exactly as tall as I am. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good, that means I'm taller than Churchill. That's good. <laughs> he was five foot seven, eight, somewhere in there. And uh, he was, uh, he didn't, he was slender, a little whippet of a kid, kind of weak. And he really only got tubby after he became 50. Uh, he was a brilliant fencer, and he was a brilliant polo player. Uh, Churchill was uh, quick, right? So Lincoln, the first impression he got of Lincoln, you know, until, and both of these things are qualified by the fact that they both became, during their lifetime, the greatest man in the world, and were thought of that by most people they met. But that took a long time, right? Most of their lives, they weren't like that at all. So what you thought when you saw Lincoln was, he's a rube, Gosh, his coat's dirty, you know, big, awkward guy, kind of ungainly, a little ugly, right? What you Squeaky voice, maybe, maybe. What, yeah, what you thought about Churchill was quick, smart, fast, small, uh, self-important, uh, dominates the conversation. Uh, wow, I wish I knew, you know, there's a joke that was famous about Thomas Babington Macaulay, and that is... I wish I knew as much about one thing as Lord Macaulay knows about everything. Everything. (laughs) People would apply that to Churchill, right? And so Lincoln was much more often underestimated than Churchill was. I wonder if you can recall the the story about Churchill where one of his envious uh, uh, opponents said that fairies got together and they gave all the gifts to Churchill. Then they thought they'd given him too much, so they gave him a shake and out judgment. That was Edward Halifax or Neville Chamberlain, but I'm pretty sure it's Edward Halifax. <laughs> and, and they developed this account of him, right? And the account of him is, gracious, listen to that guy. How does he do that? You know, th- that's the first thing. You've got to start with that. You know, he would, the House of Commons, where he lived his life, and I want, it's very important for everybody to understand this because it's the greatest thing in the world, Right. It's the chamber of the House of Commons. You can go and see today in the same building. It's a 17th century building, actually, on the site, going back to 1100. There have been buildings there. It's still the same size and shape, and it's not big enough for all the members of the House of Commons. And that's because it was bombed out in the Second World War, and Churchill made one of his greatest speeches about how it had to be built back exactly the same. Huh. He said there has to be a sense of crowd and urgency here. And, and then, see, buildings are just like constitutions. He said, we, in the speech, he said, we make our buildings and then they make us. And in the House of Commons, there's only two sides, and they look at each other. And every day when you walk in and bow to the speaker, you must turn to the left or to the right. And if you turn to the left, you've joined the government. And if you turn to the right, you've joined the opposition. And then the government and the opposition debate, parliament, parlay. It means government by talking. And he thrived in there. He loved that place. At the end of his life, when he was offered a dukedom of his own now, and they hadn't made one for 100 years, except inside the royal family. And he said, I am a man of the House of Commons. 
I will stay there, right? And so he he and and because it's because it's not big enough for everybody. Anybody who can draw a crowd or any question that can draw a crowd, it becomes packed and it's standing room only. And for most of his life, I mean, with like a four-year exception where Neville Chamberlain and Stanley Baldwin had beaten him and he seemed irrelevant, and then his glory, his greatest glory, came after that four-year period. But for most of his life, if he would stand up, everybody would rush in to hear him. And that is why we are going to spend many weeks in Winston Churchill. Go and get the book right now. It's, it's at Amazon.com, Larry R. and Churchill's Trial, or link at DoDoIt.com. And do not miss any, because it will be so crucial to your helping us choose wisely, us being the country writ large, the next leader. Thank you, Dr. Arn. I'll be right back to wrap up this week's show.